You're listening to the Interventionist Podcast, series-based journalism from within. Don't be silent. Uh, to leave the EU. You know, entrapment has won on this occasion, and uh, I have to accept that. We'll make America great again. Future starts here and now. Future is you. Called a difficult woman, and that's the pre-watershed version. This <laughs> role, from the time you are making tough decisions. Yeah. Do we want to run our own policies? Yes, have our we own do. Country? In this episode, we introduce a brand new series called Whose Brexit Is It Anyway? So, let's get straight to it. Joining me to begin the conversation was our contributing editor, Aidan Ross. I began by asking him, do we need a second Brexit referendum? It's difficult to say definitively, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's becoming clear in the aftermath of the, of, the, of the vote and the subsequent general election and the general political mood at the time is that what you would, what ostensibly looks like solid ground is increasingly becoming volatile and fragmented uh, fragmented, um, uh, positions. Mm. There's territories and fiefdoms that would have seemed solid 18 months ago, two years ago, that now are just untenable, completely untenable, and we're seeing that, you know. I'd say the Labour Party are doing a better job at reading that and mm. adapting to that, largely. Um, obviously the Tories are in all kinds of bother with that. Um, and you see that, the, you know, clutching at straws with the dementia tax, the subsequent second of Nick Timothy and the other mm. advisor, etc. You know, they're, they're having a big problem um, to try and keep their finger on the pulse, as it were. Mm. Labour Party is doing much better, even though they've been ridiculed for the position on Brexit since the, since the vote. But what they've managed to do is actually keep together the coalition that voted for them at 2017. Mm. Mm. And the reason why they even made that coalition in the first place is because of um, the fudging, as it's been put, of the Brexit position. Mm. That kind of um, vagueness hasn't actually damaged them as the commentariat said that it would have. So it, do we need a second vote? I don't know. This, this could be something that in six months' time it looks inevitable. In six months' time it could look uh, impossible. Mm. We just don't know. But I think if it came to a point where a second referendum was inevitable mm-hmm. and you had the political consent in the country, the Labour Party would be much better placed to uh, exploit that and to capitalise on that. The Tory party would be dead and buried mm. because of their position on the single market and the customs union. Um, on the future economic uh, trading relationship with the EU, mm. uh, free movement, etc. I think there's a lot, a lot of wiggle room uh, in the Labour Party's Brexit stance, and mm. the reason for that um, is for this eventuality. I think Corbyn knows, I think the leadership of the Labour Party knows full well that we're in a, a volatile sort of transition period in terms of consensual mm. politics, majority mm. politics. Mm. 
um, and that there's no such thing as solid ground. So, um, yeah, but what would it take to be in that position where, I don't know, like six months down the line, um, in a position where having a second referendum could be a reality? Because obviously things haven't exactly gone to plan now. Um, so what would it take, you think, to have the second one? Would it be more public pressure I think, I or think, more think resignations or uh, a Labour government, you know? Yeah, I mean, it would have to be, it'd have to be, uh, it'd have to be several, several moving parts that coalesce to sort of, um, to make it an inevitable uh, event for, that, would, that would be forthcoming. Mm -hmm. I think, yes, the, the, the fall of the Tory government would go a long way to that. An incoming Labour government would go a long way into that. Mm. Um, I think economic turbulence would go some other way, but I don't think we, I don't think would actually be as um, as telling as a lot of the hardcore Remain vote, you know, believe it will be. I think the hardcore Remain vote, as much as they chastise Corbyn's position and as much as they, um, well, they don't really criticise the, the Tories, which I think says enough <laughs> about about that position. <laughs> You know, mm. there's there's this um, belief, if you like, on the hardcore Remain side that the economic turbulence that will that will inevitably come, um, rightly or wrongly, that that observation, that you know there'll be there'll be a sort of mass awakening, and that uh, they already believe a second referendum is inevitable. Otherwise, that you know they they pack up and go home. Mm. Um, whether that actually materialises, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Um, so what if... Okay, so we leave the European Union on um, March the 29th, 2019. Yep. We leave the European Union. Uh, in future, people will ask, where were you on the day we left the EU and all that? Yeah. Um, what happens for all these core Remainers? What, what, where does, does their... Does it finish there? Because we, we thought that UKIP would finish mm. because they, they campaigned. The whole campaign was based upon leaving the European Union we left mm. and they're still here. Mm. And the Remainers, the, some of the hard core Remainers, mm. you know, are, are still campaigning to stay in the EU, to return the referendums. So what happens to them after? Do, do they then start, would they then start a campaign to go back in the European Union? Or um, what do you think would happen then? Well, let's start with UKIP. I think, mm. for all intents and purposes, UKIP is is finished. You know, it's it's um, it never really was more than a pressure group, and now it's it's kind of uh, clinging on to that particular territory by its fingernails. You know, it's not it's not um, doing anything in terms of domestic parliamentary politics. You know, it has no representation. Um, by the end of 2019, and on their own wishes, they won't have any representation in the European Parliament, even though Nigel Farage will take a, an EU pension. <laughs> mm. um, so obviously he does like the uh, Brussels bureaucrats <laughs> when it comes to wine uh, in his pockets. Not that bad, are they, really? So UKIP, UKIP will be done, and probably wound up. Mm. And probably wound up. I mean, the, the, the problems that come with that is the breakup of its membership into, into more um, hardened... Uh, and kind of uh, salient right-wing neo-fascist parties, National Action, the BNP, Britain First, etc. Um, which is why you're seeing a bit of a bit of movement now uh, on the Tory side, 
or on the government side, on the establishment politics side, of trying to um, illegitimate these groups, banning them, making them prescribed, etc., which obviously I don't disagree with. Um, but for them, it's, it's more of a party political issue because they're worried about losing their base to these groups, um, having brought some of them on board because of their stance on Brexit. But not all of them, not all of them, I think that's key, um, is that a, a, a significant majority did vote Labour. And again, that is, that is the, the, uh, the, the strategic now of people like Seamus Milne and the leadership's office in positioning Labour where they did on Brexit because they've managed to take a sizeable chunk of UKIP, which stopped the Tory majority, and bring in that mass mm. upsurge in the youth vote, which has largely remained. Mm. Um, as for the hardcore maniac, <laughs> Sorry, that was a, a slip of the tongue. Um, as for the as for the hardcore Remain vote, yes, some of it will probably lobby for a new party. I don't know how serious that will be, uh, especially if we have a Labour majority government by that point. I mean, you know, are people like Chukramuna et al. really going to throw away their careers? It's the only thing they're interested in. So they're really going to throw away their careers for, you know, an SDP type um, breakaway? I don't know. The political consent is obviously not there in the country for that project. You know, it, it, is, it is a minority view, this hardcore Remain view. And we can see that from the Lib Dems' paltry return in the general election. You know, they were the only major party to campaign for Remain and they got, what, 7%? Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely embarrassing, totally embarrassing. So I should imagine that it will break down even further, that Remain vote, and you will, you will have the Progress minority wing of the Labour Party, you know, the Liz Kendall 5.5% um, uh, sort of um, faction, which is what, which is what they are really in, inside the Labour Party now. And then you will have the Lib Dem party talking to themselves and nobody else. And then you will have a very precise uh, sort of social economic bracket of middle class, white, um, suburban and intercity kind of uh, melting pot, which it, which kind of just pales in comparison to the to the apparent dynamism of the, of the current labour movement, of its current iteration under Corbyn. You know, a, a wide coalition as we talked about with people who've voted UKIP in the past, you've got people coming from the Tories, you've got people from Middle England, you've got Kensington going red. At the same time, you know, you're taking seats of establishment politicians like Nick Clegg, etc, etc, etc. So, it's, it's certainly not a danger, I would say. It's certainly not an incoming danger to people on the left and the, the labour movement more broadly. You know, if these people want to, um, if they want to die on the hill of Brexit and overturning it, then, then I think they're more than welcome to, to go and do that. Um, it will be the end of their professional political careers. Um, I think that, that's, that is the one certain thing. Um, yeah, because this feeds back in, this, especially being in Sheffield today, this, this feeds back into a wider issue, you know. Since the vote, we've been talking a lot about what's been unleashed by the referendum. And I think this notion of Brexit Britain, this breakdown in social cohesion, this kind of um, aiding and abetting of far-right fundamentalism, uh, almost a, a kind of emergence and coalescence around this idea of ethno-nationalism, you know, there's been a resurgence of that. Um, Brexit Britain in that form has always existed. 
This is not a new phenomenon. It's always existed prior the referendum, prior even you know the legislation for the referendum to take place. This disparity of culture and social view has always existed, or has at least existed for the last kind of 35, 40 years in places post-industrial like the Steel City of Sheffield, places in the north, places um, places in rural areas, etc., Wales and in Scotland. They've had this um, disenfranchisement and this, this disaffected feeling to establishment politics for a long time. We can see that with Tony Blair's premiership, you know. Okay, a landslide in 1997, but then for, then for 20 years, the Labour Party lost votes. And the Labour Party has only now started to gain votes under Corbyn. And I think that that is, uh, you can't underestimate what has been overturned there and what dynamic has been stopped and at the same time what dynamic has actually been uh, enforced and what dynamic is now in the ascendancy. So I think this idea of you know Brexit has unleashed this and unleashed that, I don't think it's unleashed it, it's maybe shined a light on it for people who have been um, sheltered from it and this is why now actually you get this, the, the high core remain position you know, they, they complain about f feeling politically homeless. You know, you get this phrase now, who's going to represent me? And by me, they mean middle class, white, male, centrist dad, you know, that kind of um, uh, previously hegemonic view, an over-represented view, that, that kind of demographic, which now is at a loss, is at a loss because they've got two choices that are radically different. There is no middle ground, there is no moderate, if you want to say that. There is no middle of the fence, kind of, middle of the road, on the fence rather, uh, choice. Because at the time there was two, they were both, you know, basically identical and that is where you got the mass disaffect, disenfranchisement of rural areas of the north, post-industrial, etc. Ex-mining communities and all, all of that. So now, you've got this reversal, you know. Um, there's something to vote for, for the people that have not had anything to vote for for a long time. Yeah, working class disaffected, post-industrial, students and young people, etc. Did people know what they were voting for? I don't think anybody could. I think there's a big difference between um, the actuality, the political reality, and the consequences of the vote up against the perception of the vote. Now, I think that the disparity of those two, uh, those two things is actually huge. So I think perceptibly, people by and large will have felt that if they were going to vote, they would at least ostensibly appear to feel satisfied with what they were voting at the time. Now, since then they might have feel duped, whatever they were voting for might not have materialised, might be looking even less likely and therefore, uh, you know, they may feel some sort of buyer's remorse, etc. But on the flip side to that, I think nobody really could have definitively said, okay, X will happen, Y will happen, you know, and this is why we didn't have anything on the ballot other than, do you want to leave the EU? You know, there was nothing on single market, there was nothing on freedom of movement, there was nothing on, um, there was nothing on um, the customs union, etc. There was nothing on any future trading relationships, there was nothing on, you know, would you want to leave the single market in favour of TT, uh, uh, the transatlantic trade partnership? You know, there was, there was nothing like that. It was simply a case of, do you want to leave the EU or not? And the reason why it was so uh, narrow is because 
we were meant to vote Remain, you know? Um, for all intents and purposes, this were a party political decision by the Conservatives to um, appease their backbench and the encroaching far right of the UKIP party, you know what I mean? It was never, ever really about, um, you know, a, a democratic process or uh, handing over power to the people, even though it was kind of uh, campaigned on that, on that footing, especially by the Leave campaign anyway. So if I can take you back to the idea of a second referendum, you briefly spoke about the ballot. Now if we were to have a second referendum, um, the question or the title, whereas before it was um, yes or no, what do you think it would look like this time? I mean it depends who would have, um, you know, the, the powers on that really. I mean if it were, say it were um, the current Conservative government, I should imagine the best that you could hope for um, from a second referendum would be either a rerun of the exact same question. Um, yeah, probably that because I mean, the terms of the deal will be bad if they negotiate it. Um, so I don't think they would go for um, you know, are you going to accept or reject the terms of the outcome of the negotiation? Um, I think it would be predicated on the idea of do you want to stay in which case the negotiations are scrapped and we overturn the referendum or do you want to leave and therefore by default you accept the outcome of the, the negotiation of the Article 50 process. In terms of whether I'd change my vote, I think it, it you know, the main reason for me voting Remain wasn't any of the of the sort of um, subsequential reasons for the remain remainer vote, you know, the, the kind of enduring remainer vote, which is, oh, you know, if you want to overturn austerity, you've got to stay in the EU, which is obviously untrue because we've had seven years of it. While we're in the EU, you know, you look at Greece, you look at Italy, these are all kind of uh, nations that are going through economic turbulence and economic issues that aren't necessarily helped and in fact are arguably hindered by membership of the, of the EU and the Eurozone. Of course not in the Eurozone, but nonetheless in political union with the European Union. Now, some reasons for voting Remain fundamentally were at the time it didn't look very likely that we were going to get a Labour government anytime soon, i.e. within a couple of years. So therefore, the question became, do you want to hand legislative power and executive power to a rabid right-wing Tory government that is just going to repeal all the best bits of the EU directives whilst keeping all of the nasty bits, mm. <laughs> uh, you know? Mm. And the answer to that question was no. Mm. It's not because the EU is a good organisation, generally, because it's not. Um, you know, it, it is basically a front organisation for an economic and political consensus that, as we are seeing, is fragmenting. So now, with the likelihood of a Labour government more than more than likely I would say in the next 18 months, two years, I would be much more uh, comfortable voting to leave the EU. And not because of some of the ideas of, you know, Corbyn won't be able to go through the nationalisation projects and blah, blah, blah. But I think ultimately 
some of the rhetoric of, of Nigel Farage to give him his dues, I think was spot on. Not for the reasons that he um, espoused them, and let me, let me clarify, because obviously a lot of it is racist, <laughs> fascist yeah. nonsense. Yeah. Um, but I think when he talks about the EU as a declining organisation, as a, you know, an elite club, as a undemocratic organisation, institution, all those things are ostensibly correct. And, and I think that is cause for concern. And especially when my rationale for voting Remain was not to hand more power to a Tory government, then the flip side to that question is, would you like to hand more power to a Labour government? And a socialist, radical, transformative programme, as laid out in the manifesto for the last general election, yes, I do want to give that more power and more leverage and more... Um, uh, more legitimacy to go and do the things which it advocates. Which, let's be fair, if weren't going to be blocked, would be um, diluted and denigrated and there would be a, a process of attrition that would come from the, uh, the more neoliberal element of, of the EU. That being said, I think what Corbyn has done He's talked to um, you know, the PES, the Party of European Socialists. I think he's done a lot of good diplomacy, where Theresa May has done bad diplomacy, very, very bad. Um, I mean, just terrible. I mean, never mind the actual kind of meetings and the discussions that she's been having. It's some of the media reporting and the way that that's been, you know, who, who I don't know who... Well, they've obviously all been sacked since then. But her director of comms and her media team are awful. Yeah. You know, these pictures of her at the EU summit when she sat on her own and all the other leaders are shaking hands, you know, you couldn't have a more um, substantial uh, visual metaphor for what she is doing right now. <laughs> you know, it's totally isolationist. It's totally, you know, it's, it's complete bunker mentality. And we see this coming out all the time with the media relationship between Europe and the, and the UK. You know, you get the most crazy rhetoric coming out in the UK. As if, you know, Claude Jun uh, Juncker and the rest of the you know, European Commission don't read the UK press. Like, you know, like they haven't got a laptop, like they don't have internet connection in Brussels. You know, it's, it's crazy that she, that she thinks and the Tory party think that they can say one thing in the UK and say another thing in Brussels. And each domain will take what's been said on their soil as sacrosanct, you know. It's just, it's balmy. And it undermines what she says on both on both um, on both sides, mm. so it, yeah, it's 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 just insane mm. right now. I mean, I, I don't know who's I don't know who's um, who's head of strategy right now. But was it someone from the BBC? So is this uh, Gibb? Yeah. Gibb now. Yeah. I mean, the the revolving door between the Tory Party and the BBC is, is probably a conversation for a, for another episode. We are in the City of Sheffield, the fantastic, the lovely uh, City of Sheffield. And let's just quickly look at their um, at the results uh, from the Brexit vote. So they voted to leave, uh, 51.9%, and Remain was 48.1%. Uh, and that was very close, and it kind of shadows the um, overall um, vote. What are your takes on that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, almost to the dot, uh, almost to the point figure, it is uh, an identical mirroring of, of the national vote. Mm. So I think Sheffield is a good, a good marker to take uh, if you want to kind of zone in and look at the microcosm. Um, and look at the breakdown of how that works. Obviously, it's not going to work for, for every constituency and every part of that vote, but in terms of the numbers and in terms of the breakdown of that, of that particular vote, it does, uh, it does mirror the trends of, of the national vote. I think, again, like I was saying before, you know, Brexit Britain, that people want to keep talking about, has been there for a long time. So you have to take that into consideration. You know, ultimately, I think the Brexit vote was predicated on a kind of delayed reaction to the financial crash, you know, which, which as we know, has hit poor people in this country anyway, the, the hardest. And again, I don't want to keep going on about this hardcore Remain position, but these people, middle class, uh, suburban, mainly southern or intercity, you know, these people don't understand necessarily in terms of their lived experience what it's like to go through effectively on and off a period of anywhere between 10 years and 30 years of not being listened to politically, not being cared for in terms of social care, not being given um, the same opportunities and access to services and education as everyone else. And not only that, but to have whatever little services and access that you do have strangled through austerity measures uh, as a result of, you know, uh, a financial crisis caused by, um, you know, major banks and ostensibly a, a subprime mortgage crisis in America. You know, it certainly wasn't, wasn't uh, created by people... Um, in places like Sheffield, mm. you know, mm. uh, even though people like people from places like Sheffield are, are feeling the brunt of it and have felt the brunt of it. Mm. That being said, so maybe that's maybe that goes some way to explain the Brexit vote. But in terms of you know Nick Clegg losing his seat the mm. following year, I think we try we look at events and we think, okay, Brexit to Nick Clegg losing his seat. There's not too much time going on there, but I do think that you have to um, almost narrow down when you're looking at political events over time recently post 2015 you know in the last two getting on to three years now more has happened than maybe what's happened since the financial crash mm. in terms of political uh, upheaval uh, you know uh, volatility and hostile nature of politics things are changing at a pace that is Pretty much, we've not seen in, in our both lifetimes. I mean, we're kind of uh, 90s kids, yeah. you know, mm. and things are moving quicker now than they've moved since we've been of kind of, you know, sentient age. Mm. <laughs> uh, so I think that's that's to be that's to be not to be sniffed at. So the difference between 2016 and 2017 in somewhere like Sheffield, if we take the Brexit vote, narrowly voting to leave, is that you can't underestimate the effect of the, of the outcome of Brexit, or the Brexit vote anyway, in radicalising young people who felt like they'd lost something or they'd been stripped of something to then come out and attack establishment politicians like Nick Clegg, who propped up a Tory government, who basically made way for a Tory majority in 2015, which then enforced the Brexit vote, the referendum itself, 
So in a roundabout way, I mean, it's obviously not Nick Clegg's orchestration, but Nick Clegg and the Lib Liberal Democrats are a major subplot to the entire narrative of Brexit and the entire narrative of austerity Britain. And that's why he got slapped down. You know? That's mm. why he's been seen off. Mm. And that's why he's been bodied. Mm. Because he is just, a, just everything that's wrong with establishment politics in this country and everything that needs to be washed away. Mm. So it's a good start. I mean, obviously we've had problems since then with the incoming Labour MP. And again, I think that's another conversation about Labour MP selections, parliamentary candidate selections anyway. You know, we both know that there's been, you know, a, a two-year period now of kind of um, lively debate, let's call it, within the Labour Party about our internal structures and about how we go about nominating um, candidates. I don't want to go into the, off, to, off on a tangent, that's, you know, probably for another time, but... There, there are definitely problems there, mm. and that, that's come to light with people like Jared O'Mara, you know. Mm. Um, and to give you a bit of context as well, like nationwide, the vote yeah. for 18 to 24 year olds was 27% voted leave and 73% voted remain, yeah. and then 25 to 34 was 34 year olds, sorry, were 38% leave to 62% um, remain. Yeah. Now, what was it that um, that kind of inspired? more young people to vote in a general election, I don't want to kind of touch the general election yet, yeah, I want to sort of carry on Brexit, to, as, to the Brexit vote where there was a less of a, of a, now we're talking about turnout now, Yeah. because obviously a lot of, uh, more young people turned up in general election to vote who in Sheffield who got rid of Nick Clegg, yeah. but it was less uh, a number of young people that voted in the referendum to maybe vote Remain because more of them did vote Remain, 73% of them nationwide. So where, what was it, do you think? Without going too much in depth into, yeah. uh, you know, Corbyn mania or something like, you know, yeah, yeah. for the general election, what was it that the Brexit vote didn't offer them to what the general election did offer them? Do you think it was the Remain side? That, that obviously their campaign wasn't as, as vocal as, you know. I think, um, yeah. you know, for, for that, for that, for that, for that first demographic, that real youth vote, 18 to 24, um, Referendums are a relatively new prospect. Added to that, you know, the general apathy of, of the youth vote before 2017. Added to that, the idea that Remain was going to win anyway. Added to that, the sense of um, things aren't going to change either way. Added to that, I think. Um, a sense of, you know, there wasn't anything inspiring necessarily to vote for in terms of Remain. It was more about whether you, um, not cared enough, but whether you saw it fit. And, a, you know, saw it fit, yeah, if you saw fit to um, try and quell the possibility of some of the ramifications of a Leave vote. So it's actually quite contrived, the, the Remain Leave dichotomy especially in the context of post-2015, 2016 politics. Now, post-Brexit, post that result, going to leave, I think that radicalised not only the, the youth vote that largely voted Remain, but that section of the youth vote that didn't turn out. Do you think they will turn out in a second referendum? Probably. Probably, yeah. I think that, that Brexit vote has radicalised a lot of young people to vote, and then it's radicalised them in the sense of they're making sure that 
they won't pass up the opportunity to uh, engage in democratic process on the condition that there's something to vote for. And that's the, that's the contingency of the Corbyn project, is that I feel that there are probably um, centrist or right-wing elements in the Labour Party, in the PLP, that now believe, because that youth vote is there, that it can be uh, much in the same way as they, as they took Middle England and the working class vote and their base for, for granted. I think they can count on it now. I think the numbers are so huge for the youth vote. I think it's something like 76% Labour. I mean, basically, if you're under 30, you just don't vote Tory anymore. You know? that's, what, that's what the kind of uh, the data coming out of the, the general election is kind of pointing towards. And that's not going down, that's going up in Labour's favour, you know, post-2017 election. So I think you can't underestimate the radicalisation effect of losing the Brexit vote from the side of Remain. Couple with that a transformative, progressive, socialist agenda, there was something there to vote for. And I think when you make it about domestic issues, which again, people lambasted the, the Labour campaign earlier on for not going big on Brexit, now it was absolutely the right thing to prioritise the NHS, education, student fees, uh, £10 minimum wage, national education service, national care service, etc. and so on. It seemed to pay off. Renationalisation of trains, etc. That, that as, a, as a multitude of uh, a package of offers, if you like, worked much better than the singular issue of overturn Brexit. Because people know, okay, let's overturn Brexit. Let's say we can do that tomorrow. Well, where are we? We're only where we were on the 22nd of June, 2016, which wasn't very good. <laughs> wasn't very hopeful, you know. And this is what I'm talking about. It was more, the Brexit vote was more, if you were going to vote Remain, it was more about mitigating the, the possible consequences of a Leave vote. Whereas now, we've actually got a propositional politics with Corbyn's Labour. There's actually a, a propositional uh, programme for government that can transform the lives of ordinary people. And I think you cannot sniff at that. And that's why you've seen the upsurge in the youth vote. And that is why as long as there is a transformative agenda within the Labour Party and, a, you know, supported by a wider grassroots movement by, you know, organisations like Momentum, then, you know, the future is, is, uh, is more hopeful and um, will continue to kind of bend to Labour's agenda. Well, uh... Well, our listeners have had uh, the opportunity to hear what we thought. Mm. So, um, me and Aidan, we took to the streets of Sheffield to speak to members of the public to see what they thought on the matter. Did you vote in the referendum? I did, yes. Uh, yes. Do you mind saying who you voted which way? To stay. Do you think a second referendum is a good idea or a bad idea? I don't know at the moment. Okay. Because so much is changing and nothing you hear is the truth. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know how you can tell what's best to do if you don't get the right information. And if there were a second referendum, would you vote differently? No. So how did you vote in the uh, EU referendum? Uh, I voted to remain. And um, why? Um, I didn't feel as though it was, I felt like leaving the EU at the time created a necessary barrier that wasn't there to other policies. I felt like leaving the EU wasn't necessary. Um, it was a little bit of an agenda that was pushed, whether it was right or wrong, I don't know. Um, but I feel like the two years that we spent and the money we spent doing that could have been spent on other policies that we haven't implemented over the last couple of years. Sure. And what do you think about the idea of a second referendum? Um, 
I'm not too sure. I mean, democratically, it doesn't make sense. If we voted to leave, it doesn't make sense to have a second one. Sure. But you can certainly argue that, um, based on the way people voted, I think they were lied to to an extent for the reasons they were voted, and I think their agendas were pushed, mm. uh, certainly to do with immigration and stuff like that, sure. that weren't fair. So, yeah, you can make an argument for it, but democratically, it wouldn't make sense. And if there were a second referendum, would you change your vote or would it stay the same? Uh, no, I'd vote Remain again. Sure. Did you vote in the uh, Brexit referendum? I did, yeah. And can I ask who you voted for? I voted Sorry. to remain. And uh, what do you think of the idea of a second referendum? Good one or a bad idea? No, I think it's a really good idea, a necessary idea. Why? Because the terms on which... Some people voted, for, voted that way for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Some on immigration, some on economic politics, some on mm -hmm. European Court of Justice. So, and you can't have them all. Mm -hmm. So the, the settlement will... Uh, will incorporate some of those things and won't incorporate others. Mm -hmm. So I think until you know what the actual terms are, mm -hmm. you can't make your mind up on uh, whether you still think it's a good idea or not. And if there was a second referendum, would you change your vote? I, I wouldn't, know. I'd vote Remain again. Did you vote yes. in the Brexit referendum? Yes. And what side did you vote for? Brexit. You voted for Leave. Uh, why? Ab interest? Because I have... Obviously, I was born in 1952, mm. and I know what it was like to live in Britain before we had mm. the, um, we joined the EU. Mm. And when we did join the EU, I actually voted to join the EU. But what I voted to join isn't what we've got now, which is why once in a lifetime opportunity to vote again, a vote is for Brexit. Mm. And what do you think of the idea about people calling for a second referendum? A good idea or a bad idea? It should be taken out and shot. Really? Yeah. Well, the thing mm. is, a lot of people don't realise um, what Britain was like before we became the EU. Mm. Uh, and in actual fact now, kind of like, I don't know, it's, life seems to be different, you know, in a, in a bad, well, not in a bad kind of way, but when, when we were on our own, um, and, you know, you could get anything from anywhere, cost of living wasn't what it is today. Mm. Etc. Etc. And for people who weren't necessarily aware or alive at those times, do you mind painting maybe a little picture of what what might have changed oh. over the time? Or you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. And if you yeah, didn't, didn't live through those yeah, yeah. days, it's, um, it's it's difficult to say. To be honest. And if there was to be a second referendum, would yeah. you change your vote? No. Did you uh, vote in the first Brexit referendum? Yes, I did. Can I ask which side? Uh, uh, to leave. Can I ask why as well? Uh, to reclaim our borders, mm -hmm. control of our laws, and so on. Mm -hmm. And what do you think of the idea uh, of having a se second Brexit referendum? Probably a good idea. I'm not mm -hmm. sure whether I'd vote the same way this time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, probably a good idea. Cool. And you might change your vote if there was to be a second one. Potentially, yeah. I'm not too happy about the way the negotiations have been run, so yeah. yeah. Okay, now, uh, onto something still Brexit related but um, a bit different. So this was an article uh, from The Guardian by uh, Vanessa Thorpe, and the um, headline is as follows. Uh, British cultural leaders fear the end of free movement. Um, Aidan, do we have anything to worry about as artists or anyone listening to this podcast who might be part of theatre companies, um, travelling artists, do, should they fear the end of free movement? Not as a be-all and end-all, no. I mean, the wider political ramifications of freedom and movement, yes. But in terms of its uh, impact on the culture sector, 
you know, it, it, it's going to affect large corporate touring companies um, and groups and organisations, which, in all reality, can probably well afford any visa costs, etc. The big problem, I suppose, you will come is from you know smaller independent companies like ourselves, like British Intervention, applying for visas as an extra cost and an extra overhead for international tours, even within Europe. So, in that sense, yes. But again, the main issues that we need to be looking at in terms of uh, art practitioners and, and culture sector workers is is the domestic factors, the domestic conditions that we actually find ourselves in and that goes to things like arts council funding, arts access, arts provision in schools, you know these domestic issues far supersede the ability for the Royal Court to get someone from France to be a dramaturg. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's, it goes much it goes much further and much more above that you know as far as, far as I'm concerned I'm much, in, much more interested in the ability for a community centre in Warrington to fund a drama club for um, you, you know um, young offenders. Mm. I'm much more interested in that being able to happen, which won't be affected by freedom of movement necessarily, than I am the Royal Court being able to get a French dramaturg in for six months a year. So is this? Um, so it's worth actually saying a bit of context to the article was that it was a survey of leading British um, figures within. Uh, within theatre and culture, yep. they included the former director of the National Theatre, Nicholas Heitner, who now has um, uh, his bridge theatre project with all his mates and that. Then <laughs> um, you have uh, quoted here acclaimed artists such as Lenny Henry, Beverly Knight, and um, and Joe Brand. Now, amongst others here, mentions um, you have Paul Roseby from director of National Youth Theatre. Um, Daniel Craig, Matt Lucas, Kate Winslet got involved, Helen Mirren, Idris Elba. Um, now, are the, is this just like an establishment rant about losing the vote? Um, or do we, do we really have something to worry about? There'll be, there'll be an element of that. I mean, sorry to go back to it again, but mm. it, it, probably is a, it probably is in, in some... There will be a component of this continuation of this sort of hardcore Remainer thing. Um, because even though it's a social minority in the, in the country, there are obviously people with a uh, political platform and social platform that hold these views so that they can, uh, you know, it's funny that they talk about uh, political misrepresentation or underrepresentation when actually they have all of these establishment figures out there batting for them. You know, as I've said, all these people that have said this, I'm, I know they're not necessarily talking about their own careers, but they won't be affected by it one bit, you know? And... Again, I just think it, it's much more to do with domestic issues. Now, for me, all those people that you just listed should be far more worried about, you know, someone from the Murdoch family being appointed to the Arts mm. Council board. Mm. That's what they should be worried about. You know, the, the, the encroachment of uh, media hegemony and corporate hegemony into, into the arts culture and into, into the arts uh, systems and, and structures. That should worry them very much so and they're not worried about that mm. or if they are they're keeping very strong about it because that's not what they're told to talk about necessarily mm. so I think there's a problem there it, it, there will be a component of a continuation to remain this hardcore remain view but as I've said 
for me and I think for the people to which they're espousing this will affect I think the things that really affect them are domestic issues and and they can be uh, altered irrespective of, of the machinations of this, this Brexit process. For these leaders, or inverted commas, uh, these theatre leaders or these big people, yeah. you know, these big reputations, they can come out and say um, that they fear in the free movement, they can have these political opinions or these opinions they can say out loud. Mm. Now for artists it doesn't exactly seem, um, it's not exactly the same. Because if a group of artists came out and they'd done either a piece or an article themselves saying, uh, you know, highlighting issues of, of why Brexit might be good, or even bad, you know, bad, bad or good, yeah. uh, they're treated differently. Their, their work isn't, you know, they're sometimes not allowed to be put on. Um, their work is deemed too political mm. <laughs> for some. <laughs> not that we've had personal experience yeah. uh, without ourselves, but um, why is there this big difference? I'm kind of more going down now talking about probably issues of, well, of politics, think, but these, these big people can speak out, because it's can say exactly, things about artists. Exactly as you just said there, these, yeah. these inverted commas, big people. It's people that supersede their kind of artistic platform and their platform as artists, and they become you know, social spokespeople. And this is the exact reason why it's these people saying these things, because they have a profile and they have a platform and through their fame, um, you know that they they are perceptibly sort of listened to on, on some level at least, and therefore the more kind of uh, establishment figures that you can bring out to bat, the more uh, solidified your argument looks or appears. Um, that's not to say that it is legitimate, but this is. I mean, this is probably you know. The Remain side, this, this, this overlap, this overhang uh, of the Remain side, they're not interested in overturning people's thoughts, necessarily. They're interested in overturning a democratic majority. That's their only goal, that's their only aim, and that's their only tactic. They're not interested in hearts and minds, they're not interested in speaking to people's issues, they're not interested in dispelling uh, the entrenched views of a lot of that Brexit cohort. They're just not interested in it. They want a quick fix, they want to go back to the status quo from which they've made their fame, made their money, made their careers, uh, made their lives. So in a way, you've got to say fair play to them. They're, they're defending the fiefdom that's gave them everything, you know? Um, it's not gonna work though, you know? As I've said, the, the, the real issue lies with domestic policy, and domestic policy can operate irrespective of this particular question of freedom of movement in the culture sector. What will a Brexit Britain look like, do you think, for the culture sector? I shouldn't say Brexit Britain, Britain because obviously you said it, it's, see, it's yeah. always no, existed. I see, I see but what I'm saying. I mean, I we leave again, 2019, because it says here also that um, <laughs> the government acknowledges it brings in £87 billion a year to the economy. Right. Um, Think that 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 will kind of dramatically be hit? Do you think? I mean, it, you'd have to see a breakdown of those figures. It depends mm. where the majority of those figures come from. Mm. You know, um, and obviously we don't know the terms of the agreement. Um, you know, let, let's say for example, 10 billion of that is from uh, foreign tourism. Maybe that will go down. Mm. You know, 
in in the in the uh, in the first couple of years after the after we leave. You know, who knows? And this is what we're talking about. No one really knows what the ramifications are going to be. Um, what I would say though is, it, again, with it being with the primary issue being around domestic policy. I think you've got to look at the potential for a radical left Labour government incoming and trying to fund the arts sector, trying to uh, do away with corporate encroachment, to re-establish uh, community arts, to properly fund fringe networks and to basically build a legitimate and credible provision and a credible pathway to tackle the main issue with arts, which is representation, class representation. Um, you know, I'm sure all of these people that you just listed would also agree that there's a, a problem with representation, class representation. Now, I can tell you for free, that's got nothing to do with the continuation or the abolishment of freedom of movement. You know, this is a proxy argument that they're, that they're kind of uh, batting for. They're basically uh, pushing a Remain agenda through the proxy kind of uh, territory of the culture sector because that's to the industry to which they reside. But as we all know, the, well, not we all know, but as we all ought to know, the problems are class representation, provision, access, you know, access to drama schools, etc., student fees, and this is how a Corbyn government, irrespective of freedom movement, irrespective of membership of the EU, could change that. Free student fees, um, you know, arts and culture access, and education from a young age, uh, the re-establishment of it as a curriculum, as a communal activity, having a social function, etc., etc. I mean, some of those things you can do tomorrow, so student fees you could do tomorrow. Mm. Some of it will take a lot longer to entrench and for it to become, uh, you know, cultural, if you like. You know, you look at countries like Germany and they've been doing this for 50 years now. You know, in the 70s they had culture for all. And when you go to Germany, they've got the best of the best in theatre. I think their culture budget, the last time I looked, London's uh, budget for the arts was about 4% and Berlin's was uh, over 11%. So you're talking nearly nearly triple. Now, that's why they have the best sets, that's why they have the best troops, that's why they have the best training institutions, that's why they have the best output, that's why they have the best avant-garde practice, that's why they have the, the best research practice, etc, etc, and so on. And all of that is not arts for art's sake, it has a social value, it has a social function. You know, ticket prices are subsidised for some theatres, etc, etc. So people of all classes can access it. And when you go and see a show, uh, I went to the Shaobuna a couple of years back, um, and to the Deutsches Theater. And the Deutsches Theater is a radical avant-garde producing house. But it's in kind of what you would, uh, where you would hold, you know, massive musicals, kind of rich, regal, dress circle, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the theatre that was on there was was purely radical and avant-garde, and there was people from all demographics. I mean, obviously, perceptively, you could only see, so maybe that's not uh, scientific data collection. But 
You know, there was old people, there was young people, there were students, there was uh, well-to-do people, if you want to say that, and not so. So you don't really have that breadth of demographic, certainly not for you know, a, a, a radical, experimental avant-garde piece, say in London, because people will be priced out, and even if they could access it, there's this cultural feeling that it's not for you. Mm. And so that's how the entrenched view of theatre becomes uh, elitist, and that's where the engagement kind of falls away, and that's where the provision crumbles, and that's why the funding isn't even, there's not even a, a kind of coherent campaign to bring that back because there's this apathy both in the disaffected, uh, disengaged um, potential audience, as it were, that's not engaging, the working class or the underclass, but actually from arts practitioners, because they don't, they don't want to make that work. You know, they don't want to um, go against the kind of hegemonic system that, again, has given these people their careers. Why not? Well, because, because their careers are predicated on a system that is anti to that, you know. If all these producers and all these executive producers and all these directors start opening their mouths, they'll find that, you know, BNP Paribas and these banks don't want to fund their institutions anymore, you know. So this, again, this is a wider issue of corporate encroachment, you know. People don't want to uh, get too dissident because then they might lose their Arts Council funding because there's someone from the Murdoch family incoming onto the board. You know, these, these things have effects and these things have wider cultural uh, consequences. And just because it's complex and complicated and relevant to, you know, several moving historical lineages and genealogies, it doesn't mean that it's not uh, relevant and pertinent and worth doing something about. But this is about building a wider coalition and a campaigning, campaigning with a coherence to return art as a social good and a public good with, with a function and an accessibility for everyone, irrespective of geography, irrespective of economic income, irrespective of education, irrespective of profession and age. So do you think there's a problem um, in this country with theatre companies not thinking about the consequences of their actions? Yeah, big problem. When I say actions, I mean, I mean exactly the point you just said yeah. about applying for Arts Council funding and the lineage of that, yeah. of that, you know, of that. Well, there's a big problem, yeah, and it's yeah. twofold. It's twofold. I mean, on the one hand, there's people who, who will always just want to make art for art's sake. Mm. In a way, that, that's fine. On the other hand, there's people who know full well that they have to toe the line. You know, you meet these types. Yourself and I have met these types over the last two or three years. You know, just toe the line, just water this down. Maybe not say that, you know, or you might not get this funding, or you might not get this gig, or you might not be able to perform at this festival again, etc., etc., etc. You know, and. It, it, this this goes back to more of a philosophical understanding of what art is, and if you're going to make art, what is it? Yeah. You know, for me anyway, art should always be dissident. It should always be um, about uh, it'd be reductive to say something like um, you know, speaking truth to power. But it should always be 
reflective of social conditions and it should always side with the oppressed. You know, it shouldn't by default side with the oppressive forces. And all too often, artists and companies and, and theatre organisations have to appease that oppression. They have to incorporate it, they have to assimilate to it. Now, they would say, well, we have to do this to keep our funding, we have to do this to keep our standing, we have to do this to keep producing. What's the point in doing those things if you are more and more and more becoming, you know, a, a kind of outpost for a corporate um, agenda? What are, what are you, you know? I would say that ceases to be art at all, in the, from the dissident tradition anyway. So we're at a crossroads, you know. We have, to, we have to foster and engender a coherent countercultural arts movement. And that will come with political campaigning and political organising for more provision and all the things that I've laid out. But it also comes from rejecting corporate interests, rejecting uh, establishment theatres. It means rebuilding the decimated fringe network and making sure that there is a space that is not city-centric and certainly not London-centric, so plural spaces all over the UK that engender a sense of counterculture and can entrench that within communities and within wider society. That's the only way we're gonna do it. It will not come from the top-down because the top-down want to quell that, they want to stifle that, and all of the structures and all of the operational manoeuvres that they're involved in just further that, you know, and kind of tighten up that, that observation and that view. So it has to come from below. And the only, reason, the only way that can be done is if more people reject the, um, the lit pathway, if you like. There's a reason why this pathway is narrowed, and that's because that's the one that's accessible, acceptable rather, to, to the systemic sort of uh, structures that oversee the culture sector. So we have to start rejecting that. I understand it's hard for people to do, right? Because people want to make a career, people have got bills to pay, we're living in Tory Britain, we've got Brexit, we've got all these tumultuous factors going on. I understand that that's difficult, but at the end of all of that, nothing can satisfy your artistic uh, sense of satisfaction more than making something purely original, purely out of your own back, sourcing the, vo the, the venue yourself, collaborating with like-minded people without uh, you know, private money and private encroachment, and to put that on in a room full of 50 people for the sake of doing that, for the sake of social congregation, for the sake of presenting a message that's undiluted from any extraneous force. Now if you're an artist, there's no better thing than that. And anything that fails to reach that is in some way tarnished or in some way diluted or in some way it's been sort of augmented by this um, outside, uh, naturally sinister, insidious force, you know. It doesn't want that to occur. So you have to make a choice as an artist where you say, okay, I might not make the big books, I might not make the contact straight away, I might not get in with 
the the established people, but I'm building something grassroots, I'm building something that belongs to the society, and I'm building something that will be persistent and resilient to these outside forces. And I think that's kind of the project that we've tried to uh, embark on with British Intervention. And the thing is, in the, in the current climate, it gives you, <laughs> you don't want to use a marketing term, but it does give you a unique, uh, uh, well, yeah, I'm going to say a unique selling point. You know, it does, it does separate you from the crowd because you have something that is, um, by, by its very nature, it's organisationally different. Its output is different. You know, its, uh, its feel is different. Its interaction is different and its social function is different. Therefore, you really do carve out a space for yourself. And I think these are the questions that artists need to be looking at. Not, can I just get some money from the Arts Council? Can I just get a gig at this venue? Can I just get, you know, this job uh, producing for this company, which mor morally I disagree with? You know, we really need to start thinking about uh, where the line is, because for me, we crossed it a long time ago. We need to we need to kind of push back against that more coherently and with a wider base, with a wider coherence and a wider coalition. Now, Aidan, answer me this: Why is the um the idea of rejection, why is it seen as radical and not progressive? Because uh, uh, you have a group of artists or, or a singular artist who, who puts forward this vision of rejection to, to move forward, to yeah. create a new system that's, that's not only fairer but you know, it's ethical. Um, why, are, why are these people called um, anti-art, you know, called bullies or you know, anti-Western? Anti <laughs> Kind of personal well, experience, I think, but, I think but, it's but why is it not seen as as progressive? I think um, and only seen as radical and, and something that's bad. I think a lot of the thing, the thing, the dichotomy here really is that at the time, protest movements, by by nature of what they are, unless they're propositional, are fundamentally anti or rejectionish, rejectionist. Um, so that you're normally protesting about something that already exists or demanding something on the basis of something that pre-exists not being uh, acceptable or functional, etc. So at the time, movements are decried as radical, extreme, and I think that's because of the nature of what it is to protest especially in, 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 in the mass sense. And there's obviously a UK context, you know, to that and the political history. The, the flip of the coin on that though is that when you look back at uh, social change, fundamental social change, when you look back at the massive progressive outcomes, a lot of them were fundamentally uh, underpinned by protest movements. So I'm sure at the time, of the women's suffrage movement, you know, the, the hegemonic political class at the time saw that as radical, as extreme, as rejectionist, as uh, something to be, uh, something that's not palatable, right? But now, you know, a hundred, however many years later, I think it's a hundred years since women got the vote, right? So a hundred years later, we see that as something fundamentally progressive. So I do think that there, there's a, there's a, an interwoven nature to rejection and progression. It's just 
there, there's a kind of temporal delay and that's to do with you know how things are viewed at the time of which they occur and how they're sort of contextually reappropriated when you look back at them with with the sort of hindsight of historical um, insight so I do think they're interlinked there's a difference between how things are reported at the time because there's obviously class interests and political interests in the reporting of that and the dissemination of that information you have the sort of uh, the social outlook of the time that's being impressed on that occurrence and then obviously as things change with time uh, we come to a, uh, a different social view of it so I do think the two are interlinked and I do think it is it is the nature of protest movement really is that at the time you know a protest movement occurs by very nature of something needing to happen to rail to push back against something that is perceptibly hegemonic right that's why we protest something you know when Trump enacts the Muslim ban we protest against it because that has been um, legislatively enshrined all right it was rejected and it's been upheld eventually but normally you protest against something because you see it as happening anyway and the protest comes from as a response to that it's only later on when the protest movement underpinned by social movement underpinned by legislative change etc and so and eventually social change that you look back at the protest movement as being the avant-garde of that as being the forerunner to that normally it's at the time it seems like it's kind of um, well yeah rejecting uh, an entrenched view whereas when you look back on it especially if it's been positive and it's uh, and you know kind of has won the ground on the grounds and on terms that it seeks to have won you look back on it as being progressive and I think that's just the nature of of how uh, information is disseminated at the time and then how it's reappropriated and reconstituted when you look back with historical insight and hindsight. Time for some tunes now and it gives me great pleasure to introduce the South London outfit Birdsong. After taking a short break from creating music they're now coming back together for a gig at the Windmill in Brixton on the 28th of January. So you're going to hear two tunes now back to back. The first is called Burnt Wire and the second The More I Look the more I find.
And don't forget to catch Birdsong on the 28th of January at the Windmill in Brixton. And the tunes you just heard were also produced by Luke Calicundis. Now, back to Sheffield. Is there anything else that um, you might, that's on your mind at the moment? Generally, I think we've covered it. You know, um, especially in relation to Brexit and how that affects domestic policy. Um, I mean, the, the one thing on my mind at the minute is, is this Toby Young <laughs> stuff. Mm. I mean, it's just far-fetched. Mm. You know, they broke this. They broke this at one minute past twelve on New Year's New Year's Day. Mm. So one minute. So you think they have someone there on the button ready? Yeah. There was someone like this is the best time to drop this mm. or anything to drop it under the carpet and nobody know. And the response has been massive and not in a good way. <laughs> you know, A, why have they dropped it then? Because they know it's a horrible appointment. It's job for the boys, they know. Two, the response has been basically you're not going to get away with that. And three, it's the stuff that's come to light um, since his appointment. You know, the, the absolute bile that's been on his Twitter feed that's been pulled up by various um, Twitter accounts that's done screen grabs and there's actually um, a Twitter account deleted tweets by MPs I'm not sure what the handle is um, and basically when an MP deletes a tweet they post the tweet <laughs> I, don't know how that, I don't know how that works but like a vigilante yeah yeah I mean yeah it's like a Twitter bot account yeah. <laughs> I don't know how what are they works. working for I don't know yeah exactly they will ask Alexa I don't know um, I don't know how, I don't know how that works but it's a good service mm. and and the last few days their Twitter feed is just full of MPs that have deleted retweets of Toby Young mm. and then obviously Toby Young's deleted like over 50,000 tweets and some of, some of them that I've seen I've seen about maybe 9 or 10 and some of them are just vile mm. talking about well I it, I don't even They'd want have to, to have a look. We're not regulated by Ofcom, but no. I don't even want to. No. I don't even want to. No. You know, relay that on air. Go look from yourself. What's the They're Twitter account over. again? What's the Twitter account? His again? Twitter account. Oh no, the one that uh, takes all the deleted tweets. I don't know what the handle is. Okay. But if you search um, "deleted tweets by MPs" Twitter mm -hmm. on Google, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> just making a note of that now. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right, as soon as we finish this, yeah, yeah. as soon as I, if I press stop, it's, I'm going uh, on Twitter. Make, <laughs> makes for good reading. Yeah, makes for good reading. I mean, this 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 guy is a toad. This guy is an utter toad. He got into Oxford on a technicality <laughs> of a fool who <laughs> recommended you. It's uh, <laughs> it's just appalling. Mm. You know, it's just, and I kind of feel like. This is almost a, a Malcolm Tucker-esque sleight of hand, dark arts of spin. You know, throw Toby Young's appointment out there at the new year. Everyone's going to go mental at that, and rightly so. Meanwhile, something dark and sinister mm. is going on, you know, I'll behind the scenes, as it were. Scenes, yeah. You know, Toby Young is basically the colonial jam boy for the Tory party right now. They've stuck him out to attract the flies while all the racist, mm. <laughs> colonialist, imperial sergeants of the Tory party, you know, kind of sweat on their next move. And I, I, it wouldn't be surprised if they do more of this stuff, you know. 
Um, and this guy's gonna be taking a taxpayer-funded wage. It is an outrage. And I don't even think they'll they'll you know sack him because of it. I think they'll just let it rumble on. Mm. It's like Jeremy Hunt. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the the new I think the new tactic now for the Tory Party is just just <laughs> plug the holes. Mm. Don't get rid of Theresa May. Don't get rid of Boris Johnson. Don't get rid of Toby Young. You know, don't get rid of Jeremy Hunt. Just leave them in place until they've rotted out of the hole to which they're plugged to. And then you can replace it with yeah. another plug. And then you can replace it and then go, oh, all that horrible rot, that was all them. And mm. I'm the shiny new mm. saviour of it all. Uh, I think that's the Tory strategy, I really do. So um, just purely as a distraction device to what's yeah. going on, going on. like I mean, it, Trump's Twitter it's account, no, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, no, it's no surprise that the Tory party are only interested in one thing, that's clinging to power. Now, if they had any strategic now about them, well, if <laughs> I'm not going to give them strategic clues, <laughs> so I'll keep it to myself. No. Actually, but you know, they're just in—they're just in dire straits. It really are in dire straits. From the DUP billion-pound bomb to Damien Green wanking at work. I mean, Damien Green only go only went because <laughs> Damien Green only went because he broke the ministerial code, mm. and that was about lying about it. That mm. wasn't about doing it. Doing no. You know, he was gonna—he was gonna. Have his right to wank at work for seven hours a day, taxpayer-funded Kleenex. You know, he he was going to have that um, that particular territory or sticky patch defender. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's a joke. Yeah. They are they are a joke party. Mm. Um, when's it? When's it? Um, when's their party going to end? When's their, <laughs> their I don't know. I, I don't know. You know. I, mm. I think. Uh, this could be going on. This could be going forward uh, at least a decade, mm. if not, if not, you know, a decade and a half, maybe a couple. I think if we get if we get PR, circumstances and conditions have to change a lot. I think for that to happen. But if we got PR, I think there would be more um, more weight put behind splintering of the Tory party into a, a you know a kind of centre right right Tory party and then a kind of centrist centre-right mm. Labour party uh, split between Labour party and then a socialist Labour party or a left-wing Labour party and then you would have four parties mm. you would have the Lib Dem still on 7% even um, with PR even with PR yeah <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that um, so do you think maybe the next tactic for Lib Dem still you just briefly talked about PR do you think now they need to forget about Brexit and potentially go back to their argument of PR for them to to start building a base again. No, I know I've gone completely well, off topic. Yeah, but no, but I, looking I objectively, don't, I don't know what they do. I don't mm. know what they do. I really don't because if they give up the go to the Brexit thing, they lose their seven percent as well. Mm. You know what I mean? Their seven percent is a hardcore Lib Dem Remain vote, and it's more Remain than Lib Dem. Mm. So if they drop the Remain stuff. They're, they're finished. Like you're talking 1%. You're talking UKIP territory, green territory. Um, what will it take? Do you think it will take um, maybe more of a right, a right sort of liberal-esque 
kind of position for the Liberal Democrats to then bring them forward. Because I'm just trying to think, I don't know, you're like, you think of Tony Blair and the rise of the Labour Party there, and then for them to, yeah. for that crash, so to speak, yeah. and then for Corbyn for that rise, the Lib oh, Dems, yeah, do they need a similar, uh, arguably they've crashed now, one could say, but <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't hope know. so. I don't <laughs> know. They don't really go any lower. <laughs> looking at it objectively, they're, they're, you know, for the Lib, if there's any kind of Lib Dem supporters listening, what would be sort of their if um, but what would be their rise you know did it I, I've no I idea no, I've, no. No, I've no idea no. I mean I think the best that they can hope for ironically is a Labour majority government and then a protracted uh, period of time in which the Tories you know don't have their arse on their elbow so to speak to which point the Lib Dems can position themselves on the basis of what they actually are you know the Liberal of the Liberal Democrat is economic liberalism mm. and neoliberalism at that Hence why they were happy to jump into bed with the with the Tory government from 2010 to 2015. Mm. So they're economically speaking, they're not that different to people like George Osborne, mm. uh, Nicky Morgan, etc. Is there such thing as a liberal Tory? No, no. That's what I'm I, I mean, mm. I do, this this is this is my pet hate mm. when it comes to political terminology. You know, it's. They're a contradiction in terms. You cannot have a liberal conservative. Think about what those two things mean. You know, they're, they're quite literally the opposite ends of a very clear dichotomy, right? <laughs> now, obviously, you could talk about economic liberalism versus economic conservatism versus social liberalism versus social conservatism. And I think that's what they're trying to say. They try to say, I'm a social liberal, i.e. Um, pro-abortion rights, pro-women's rights, ostensibly, I mean, they're not. Mm. Um, Pro-gay marriage, etc. And then it's kind of uh, an economic neo-liberalism coupled with a kind of sense of uh, social conservatism, the family, business, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't work. There's, there's so many. There's so many particular fiefdoms and territories within that dichotomy that liberal conservative. What are you doing? I, I just don't. I don't understand that. You know, whatsoever. And these people, you know, Anna Subri, Nicky Morgan, George Osborne before he left, that kind of Cameronite wing of the of the Tory party. And the kind of centre, centre-right progress faction of the Labour Party right now, there's no between them. Nothing. There is. There's, there, you couldn't. You couldn't get a. You know. You couldn't get a, a piece of horsehair in between them, in terms of their platform. And you see this because they defend each other. They defend each other, and they agree with each other, and they're pals with each other. You know, and all this came out with Laura Pidcock saying she doesn't want to fraternise with Tories. Good. You know, a, a hard-working mm. uh, representative of Labour voters mm. should not be friends with Tory MPs. Mm. <laughs> like, I don't understand how that's not clear. You know, Jess Phillips. <laughs> Again, that's a separate episode. <laughs> it's a separate episode. No, I don't mm. want to go. No. I don't want to go into bashing of centrist or centre-right Labour MPs. But people like Jess Phillips, they go running cars at Jacob Rees-Mogg and mm. think that that's... Murdoch you know, parties. That Murdoch was, parties. Um, and they think day. that that is well within their remit. 
well it ought not to be it really ought not to be and I think that I mean whether the political consent for that was ever there I think that is that is waning fast mm. um, so all abroad all about the choo-choo train is all I can say next year right I'm going to ask you one final thing will 2018 be the year the comeback of George Osborne and Tony Blair <laughs> hopefully I think that'd be that'd be hilarious like Nosferatu and his <laughs> little bellboy or something I mean yeah <laughs> again it's like what we're will we see Tony Blair in mainstream politics <laughs> in 2018 that's what I want to know he already is in mainstream politics yeah. or he thinks he is mm. you know the guy thinks it's 1998 mm. the guy thinks that yeah I mean I don't know what he thinks actually he's, he's an absolute melt mm. and he's speaking to a political coalition that quite literally doesn't exist mm. there is no political consent for the platform that he espouses this is a guy who is a mercenary you know he takes a wage to advise despotic dictators of mm. failed states you know why is he doing this though? That's what I'd like. Why? Why can't it, like like Bush when Bush left office, he, turned, he got on his ranch and he, now he's it's madness. Now he's done all his painting, yeah. and he's got exhibitions. I'm not saying that Blair should become an artist, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but what I mean is, yeah, why why is he doing this? Why? I think, I think you've got to go back. You've got to go back to his leadership and his his first internal uh, battle with the Labour Party, which was. Uh, repeal of Clause 4 and effectively the subsumption of a lot of the Thatcherite agenda, the economic agenda, um, and that hegemony that had been built. Now at the time, the spin of that was uh, things have changed, uh, you know, people have moved on, the economy's moved on, and this is a fact of life now, we have to accept X, Y and Z. Now of course that was never the case. It was that his personal ideology and um, espoused that or accepted the Thatcherite economic model, um, decreased role of unions, etc. Um, and, and the kind of removal of um, left platform to the Labour Party. He, he wanted all of that. It wasn't, it wasn't this pragmatic, practical um, uh, politics that, you know, it was spunners. Mm. So you've got to keep that in mind. When you look at why he's so um, quick to run on down to Radio 4 today or where, whatever platform he gets given, mm. uh, whatever Portland Communications can carve out for him that day, mm. because he doesn't want the order that is uh, crumbling, but it's still there. He doesn't want that order to be over overhauled. You know, again, he's made quite a cushy career out of it. Mm. He's got his contacts, he's got his empire, he's got all the rest of it. He doesn't want that to change. He has got a stake in that. Mm. Now, what the Labour Party under Corbyn is doing is saying, what we want to do is change that. We want to give a stake to working people, to people who can't get a house, to single mothers, to people who can't afford to go to university, to people who can't afford uh, train fares, mm. to people who can't afford to take a job uh, when they live outside of a city because they can't get there, etc, etc, etc. People who can't pay their utility bills, people who are homeless on the streets. And these, these, this is the demographic that the current Labour Party wants to give a stake to. 
Now that is in diametric opposition to the stake that Tony Blair has in the current order. And they understand that carbon means massive social change. They understand it means massive radical transformation. And they do not want that because they will lose out. They won't lose out that much because they're all millionaires as it is. But they will, they will lose out and their political consensus and majority and credibility, obviously already gone in Tony Blair's case, mm. but mm. will be you know, indefensibly um, consigned to the dustbin of shit history. Mm. So it's nothing to do with Blair having unfinished business or, no, or no. anything like that? I, th I think if the, guy came, if the guy genuinely stood for, well, hey, let's put it this way. There's maybe some seats that he could stand as an MP and get in. He'd be dead within a week. Mm. Mm. Have you seen him? Mm. The guy is He's, on his last yeah. legs. Mm. You know, I'm not. I won't be surprised if there's a guy's hand up his backside. You know, opening that mouth for him mm. with with a pull string mm. for all his pre-programmed anti-carbon lines. Mm. You know, the guy is literally a puppet now. And he's literally just a spokesperson of the establishment. That's all he is. That's all he ever was. Mm. He was an establishment shill. Nothing more, nothing less. It's also because he's maybe fearful that the new order or uh, will we'll put him on trial for war crimes. <laughs> oh. Do you know what? Do you think that's, that's ever in the back of his it mind? It sounds unlikely, but... <laughs> I, I, it, to look at him, it looks like he spent fair, a fair few sleepless nights. And... I should imagine that that is higher up on his list mm. than the war crimes that he actually committed. Mm. Mm. And will George Osborne uh, step down as editor of the Evening Standard and come back into frontline politics? That depends. I think it depends on the condition of the Tory party. You know, the, 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 I mean, there's obviously going to be behind the scenes machinations going on there, but you know, he might be touted and scouted and dined and wined and. Mm roofied and all the rest of it um, and talked back in you know a by-election could be forced in a seat where he could get back in and then obviously he could trigger a leadership contest knowing full well that he'd have the backing because obviously the Tory party um, leadership uh, process is completely undemocratic in the sense of there's no membership vote not that they've got any members anyway um, So it depends. It could well be, but the conditions would have to be right. The conditions being, uh, they would be have to be a, a cohort big enough within the Tory parliamentary party. There would have to be the sort of um, possibility or likelihood of a by-election in a seat that he would win comfortably mm. in enough time for him to um, launch a leadership bid. I mean, it, it, again, it would have to. How quickly that process could be uh, could be un could un could unfold, um, and wh which side of the Brexit vote would that be? Mm. You know, would they want him to come in at the last minute, mm. flag his EU flag in the ground, and say, "You shall not pass." You shall not pass. <laughs> yeah, um, and here's my dad, Tony Blair, to <laughs> back me up. To back in vocal. Up, yeah. Mm. So I don't know. I don't okay. know. But again, it's like the first thing I said, you know, we live in such volatile political times, nothing is off the cards, mm. you know, nothing is off the cards. Um, in two years' time, we could be still in the EU, mm. Corbyn could have a 100-seat majority, mm. we could be a socialist republic, 
<laughs> Socialist Republic of Great you Britain. You know, with two pound pints everywhere. So mm. anything's up for grabs. Anything's up for grabs. And um, in a way, we do have Brexit to thank for that, the vote, uh, because it's just opened up the possibilities. In a sense, it's kind of terrifying because anything can happen, um, but that gives us the space on the left to actually capitalise and um, entrench our agenda and shape the agenda moving forward. Our contributing editor, Aidan Russ there, leaving us with certainly a lot more questions as well as some interesting answers in regards to the Brexit debate. And there'll be plenty more content regarding the Who's Brexit Is It Anyway series as events unfold leading up to the day we are officially due to leave the European Union on the 29th of March 2019. As always, you can get in touch with us here at Interventionist if you think there should be a topic for discussion that we're not covering, or if you have an idea for a new series investigation, or if you simply just want to get involved with the show, contribute to the publication or send us a tune, drop us an email on theinterventionist.est2017 at gmail.com or on our various social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram by searching The Interventionist. As always, thank you for listening and don't be silent.